Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Jewel and I continue talking about Plato's warnings about the danger of writing and really all information technology uh, and about how these warnings can help us think about how we read and learn from the Bible. As a couple of philosophers, uh, rather than biblical scholars, we are perhaps a bit audacious in how we talk about reading the Bible. Though as Christians who grew up and remain in the church, we have experienced a lot of great teaching a lot of great pastors, mentors, and friends, but during most of this time, we still found the Bible largely uninteresting, uninspiring, and really simply lacking the power to transform. Our issue, we claim here, was not the Bible, but how we had learned to read the Bible. We argue here that while Plato talks about the dangers of writing, he shows us how to write and gestures toward how to read writings that are like his, and the Bible is in some very relevant ways like Plato's writings. Looking at how we should read Plato gives us some suggestions then on how to read the Bible. So while Joel and I come across a bit critical of a lot of general Christian approaches to Scripture, this comes out of a lot of personal experience and some level of education in Bible and theology, but mostly from having experienced a renewed love for the Bible that arose in part from studying philosophy. For me in particular, learning how to read, learning how to read from philosophers such as Plato and even Nietzsche uh, made me fall more in love with scripture. We hope that something in here may be helpful to you as well. Wandering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Please check out tacticalfaith.com to find our other podcasts, or other podcasts, that is, TF Radio, uh, some blogs, information on upcoming events, and ways to contact us. Tactical Faith is an organization that for almost 10 years now has held events, given talks and education, produced content, encouraging thought and wisdom in the churches of Alabama. We are entirely volunteers, and so we welcome both your suggestions and, of course, any spare cash you have lying around. Most of all, we would love to engage with you and to have your prayers that our ministry might serve the kingdom of God. And Wondering Toward Wisdom is also looking for any questions or topics you might be interested in, any philosopher or philosophy you find interesting or troubling and would like to talk to us about, any suggestions or or critiques or complaints, send us an email wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an underscore where the O or the A would be. Wondering at tacticalfaith.com or follow us and chat with us on Twitter at wonderingwisdom. Again, an underscore where the O or the A would be. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with Travis and we're going to pick up from our last conversation. Uh, if you remember, we were talking about uh, how do we read the Bible, or what what do we mean when we say the Bible changes us? Reading the Bible changes us, or or, or does the Bible really change us? And or if it does, how does it work? Um, I mean, you know, we we tend to uh, break the Bible down into to facts about things and and about commands of how to live life. Um, but you know, we, we look at when Jesus said, we're the two greatest commands, love God and love your neighbor. And we can go one step farther with the neighbor and talk about love your enemies. Um, but how do we do that? I mean, if you're like me, you're probably like, well, I'm going to do nice things, but I'm not really going to feel affection or warmth toward that person. I'm not going to want that person's good. I'm just going to do the things I'm supposed to do that look loving because that's what I think it means to love my neighbor or love my enemy, especially. 
And, but that's, doesn't seem to be what Jesus is getting at. Jesus isn't just saying, do these things. He's, you know, that, that look like you love your neighbor, that look like you love your enemy. He's saying, no, actually love your neighbor, actually love your enemy. And we believe the Bible helps us to do that. We believe that the Bible, the study of scripture should help us to do that at least. Um, Although as a Bible major, I can tell you studying the Bible academically at times may have helped me, but it also gave me excuses to dig into things that, that uh, allowed me to not focus on it changing my life, but just understanding mentally and not forming me as a person. Um, and I think we can all, the, when we read the Bible, I, I at least I, I hope that we all look at it because we, we, and we read it in a way that we want it to transform us. We want it to form our lives. We want it to do more than just give us head knowledge or give us a list of duties to, to perform. Today, we're going to look at the Phaedrus in more detail and see some tools that Plato gives us to, to understand how we are to approach a written word generally that we can apply specifically to Scripture. Um, with that being said, let's just dive into Plato. Um you know, Travis is our Plato expert. You know, he he's going to uh, give us some groundwork to Plato and, and some of the texts to Phaedrus that help that will eventually help us to get a better grasp on what are what's going on when we read scripture and we we want it to transform us. So, Travis, go for it. Well, uh, that's maybe too much of a promise for what I will be able to accomplish. But my goal is to. Uh, perhaps uh, pull a little bit of Plato in here because Plato has had an impact on the way that I read scripture. Uh, Some of it might be a little bit strange and maybe difficult really to uh, explain well, but I think there's some here, there's at least some questions here that help point us in the direction and bring some of this up. And, and I I, I do want to add one, one quick thing. I mean, if you look at first Corinthians 13, First three verses, you read about, you know, if I have, if I have knowledge, if I speak in tongues, if I have prophecy, even if I, if I give my body, if I, you know, give myself over to the flames for, for other people, but I don't have love, it's all a waste. Right. And so this idea, you know, this idea of like, uh, we, we break, I really do feel like what happens is we break the Bible down into facts and then some sort of practical law or practical application, uh, practical moral law. And yet you can't stack up practical moral law ever to equal love. Um, not in the way that we normally do it. Like do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Well, you can do all the things and not love. And you can know all the things and not love. And so, you know, again, we I think we mentioned a few times the last time, even the demons believe and shudder. So the question is, how are we supposed to read scripture? And I had the same experience. I actually had probably a far worse experience than Joel did. Um, through undergrad and even somewhat in the seminary, the more I studied scripture, the, the less I cared, which seems to be the opposite, right? And I was getting, I could argue with you all day about this or that theological idea, and I was studying Hebrew and Greek, and it just wasn't doing it. So, so this was something I struggled with personally, but there were a few things that kind of began to open up and 
and it's like I began to love God while learning about God, which was something that was somewhat new, had been somewhat new to me. So, but I think Plato brings out some of this, particularly in his criticism of writing, because uh, uh, the the problem with the Bible, if I can say that, the problem with the Bible is it's written down, and we all own a copy. And we can all quote it and we can get on our Bible tools and so on and so forth. And but it it's not I think maybe we said this last time too. God's not out there like reaching out and like slapping us every time we get something wrong. He's like, what did it didn't stop, 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 stop. That's that's not right. That's not you're misunderstanding me. God doesn't seem to do that very often, right? I, mean, I, I think God would do that more often if we were more of a church united in iron sharpening iron. But we don't really do that. We just condemn each other on social media. Uh, in passive aggressive tones without naming anybody. But, uh, but so, so in other words, God works through the church works among us, but so let's, how, how are we supposed to read scripture? Uh, well, let's start by just talking about the problem of writing in general. And I, we brought this up last time. I talked about the story of Thamus and Thuth, um, and the problem with writing, but we didn't get, we didn't get very far into this because the Phaedrus is a, is a, uh, a work of Plato where, where, and it was written, you know, this was written about 2400 years ago. Um, so it was about the time the old Testament was getting finished, written up, right. Wasn't Malachi written somewhere around 400. Roughly. BC? Roughly. So this is being written about the, about the time at the end of the old Testament. And Plato is, is talking about the problem of writing, the problem of speeches in general, but really specifically the problem of writing speeches. Um, while well, Socrates is speaking to Phaedrus and Plato is writing this down while criticizing writing. And he brings up the initial criticism of uh, that Thamus in this, in this myth he's telling uh, that Thamus gives to Thuth about writing. And Thuth says that, hey, I've, who, Thuth is the one who invented writing, uh, according to the story. And Thuth says, you know, I found a potion for memory and wisdom and so on and so forth. And Thamus says, you think it's a potion for memory, but actually it's going to make people more forgetful and it's going to make people, and uh, this is how, I think this is about all the farther we got last time. Uh, people will be, um, well, let me just read this. This is from Phaedrus uh, 275, around uh, 275B, actually starting a little bit in A, but it says, your invention, that is writing, will enable them to hear many things without being properly taught, and they will imagine that they have come to know much, while for the most part they will know nothing. And they will be difficult to get along with since they will they will merely appear to be wise instead of really being so. Uh, this is Thamus criticizing writing. And if you think about it, writing was the first information technology, um, a way of collecting ideas, holding on to them, uh, protecting memory, checking your, your memory. And what he says is that it in fact will allow them to hear many things without actually being taught. And so he's kind of talking about modern education too, right? Not modern education, but I mean, I mean, not just modern education, but, but the advent of the internet and the ability to Google things and to learn all this information, we have access to so much information and we don't have the, but we ourselves are not very good with information. Uh, it's like we become collectors of facts and we don't know what to do with all of it. It's almost too much. And so they will be they will be able to hear many things without being properly taught, and they will imagine that, that they have come to know much, while for the most part they will know nothing. Well, what do you mean? What does it mean to say that 
we know we like right now we know nothing or we know almost nothing when we know so much we know a lot how could he say that i mean if you're able to read a bunch of books and get a bunch of facts what do you mean you know nothing well obviously no is being used in a couple different ways here right you know a lot right. of facts but you you don't understand how it works you don't understand what 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 draws it all together right um, and that's because you haven't been properly taught on what to do with the information right um, and then of course they will be difficult to get along with since they will merely appear to be wise instead of really being so. Well, if there was one way to describe contemporary, particularly if you're, if you're on social media at all, this is a perfect description of social media. You know, you can, you can point to your sources, your, whatever media you listen to, uh, the commentators and pundits and so on and so forth you listen to and articles you read that will give a bunch of information and you're really difficult to get along with. Yeah. Um, and the suggestion here, by the way, is if you're really wise, you won't be that difficult to get along with. At least it seems to be the case. Um, right. So, so uh, this is what this is Socrates. So first, he just criticizes writing. Well, if if writing is a problem, if writing these kinds of things is a problem, then the Bible's a problem because the Bible's a writing. The thing is, he's not necessarily talking. So here's the issue. Plato's writing this. Plato is writing a criticism of writing. And it specifically is in part a criticism of speeches. And in the Phaedrus, Plato is writing speeches because both Phaedrus and Socrates give these speeches and Plato, Plato writes them out. That suggests that Plato is either a complete non-reflective idiot, unreflective idiot, or Plato is trying to point us to toward, toward something. There's, a, there's, if somebody is writing a criticism of writing, what, what should we be looking for? Like, if I were to ask a class that, what do you think? Somebody is writing a criticism of writing. Well, clearly they're writing, and he's saying, here's a problem with writing. Here's a problem with writing, and the main thing is it doesn't. It, it won't lead them to wisdom because they're going to they're going to think they know a bunch of facts, but they don't really understand. But they've got all the facts. So, so obviously, he's not saying all writing is bad. He's saying the way we use writing in a certain way is what makes it troublesome. Yes, yeah, specifically, I think the collection of information. And so, let me let me throw out a kind of an issue because this is a this is a bit of a. Uh, a stress in Plato scholarship. Uh, I think there's a shift coming in Plato scholarship because the old view of viewing Plato is just stupid, but it's what most people still believe. <laughs> um, but I shouldn't say, well, you know, they're not going to listen to this podcast. I don't care. But uh, <laughs> most people read Plato and we kind of read the Bible this way. And this starts to get us toward how, how should we maybe be reading the Bible? Most people read Plato and they look for the good, the quote unquote, good guy, the one who's right, right? So if you read it, if you read a, uh, 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 more contemporary dialogue, like the dialogues of Hume or the dialogues of Berkeley, right? Berkeley, uh, not Charles, but William Berkeley. <laughs> anyway, if you read their dialogues, there's a character in it who's smart and knows, has all the right answers. And there's characters who are dumb and have the wrong answers and they represent, you know, maybe what the normal person thinks or whatever, but the good smart character shows them that they're wrong and so on and so forth. Um, 
And so all you have to really have to do, if you want to know what Hume thought, or if you want to know what Berkeley thought or anything like that, you, you find the person who's their character. Um, so Philonus or Philon, Philonus, I guess in Berkeley. And I forget what the Hume, the, the right person's name is. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but, uh, uh, in his dialogues, um, but you, you look for that person. You're like, okay, this person has the right answers. I can boil down all the other stuff. They're just questions and errors. And I learn what this person says and I have the right answer. And a lot of people do that with this, right? So, and, and they break, they break Plato into different kinds of, you know, early, late, middle dialogues and all this kind of stuff. And it's based on almost no evidence. It's all circular reasoning, but in the early quote unquote early dialogue, Socrates represents, you know, sort of the answers or whatever. And then Plato starts figuring out his own answers and you got to find the character that represents Plato's view. So Timaeus is a fairly old, uh, a later Plato. And so Timaeus represents Plato's view of actual Plato's view of whatever. And so you figure out what Plato thinks and you got, or Timaeus thinks and you got the right answer. And it makes sense because Timaeus seems, it's just basically a long speech by Timaeus with a little bit of interaction, but not much. Um, but the earlier dialogues where Socrates is speaking, Socrates is usually the good guy, the quote unquote good guy. And so you boil it down to whatever Socrates thinks. This leads to problems. It makes Plato look sort of stupid because some of his Plato, some of Socrates' arguments aren't that good. Some of his interlocutors actually have some pretty good points. Um, and so you start to think, well, Plato's not really that interesting. Um, but it and, could be. And, and as someone who's not a Plato scholar, I will say that that has kind of been my experience. Like, you know, you you look you read Plato trying to figure out who's got the right answer, um, you know, and you can really just focus on that character because no no one else. I mean, if all you're looking for is the right answer, you find the guy who has the right answer. You listen to him. If you want to go a little deeper, you look at all the wrong answers and maybe dig around there a little bit. But um, you know, most of most of most of us, when we read something, we want we want to know what the answer is. We 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 read it so we can get the answer. And uh, what Travis is telling us, and and Travis has played a big role in opening my eyes to this, that um, when we read Plato, we need to read Plato not as someone who's giving us the answer, but who's giving us the path to the answer. Yes, is, is that a good way to put it? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you can look at it as someone who's giving you the questions. Um, that's not precisely correct. There's more to it than that. But I, and I think the path to the answer is a good way of putting it. Um, because what the kind of answer that Plato is looking to give you is not one that can be written down. So, I mean, consider this, right? The problem with writing is it gives you a set of facts that if you possess them, you think that you have the right answers. And now you're a, a pain and you're pain to everyone around you right? You're the stupid, like I was when I got out of seminary and went back to my hometown for a brief period. And I was an arrogant little jerk. I mean, I don't, I don't know if arrogant is the right word, but I surely came across as an arrogant jerk. And I, I had to learn to shut up and I had to learn to listen, right? Um, because people didn't want to put up with my garbage. And so the, the great irony in this is his arrogance shut down my arrogance and made me learn how to listen. Well, that's, <laughs> Joel needed it. Um, so that's a different sort of thing. But uh, what Plato is doing is he's presenting a whole series of, of reflections on the world that keep failing. They're ways of trying to answer the answer these very difficult questions, but they all fail. And the, uh, the way a lot of people look at Plato is the, the early dialogues, they, they, lead, they lead to what's called aporia. 
Anaporia is just a Greek word meaning without res- to be without resource. They end with no answer, right? If you read the Euthyphro is a classic one, um, what's piety, what's piety? And they get to the end and nobody knows what piety is. Um, and they all walk away frustrated. Uh, but part of the point there is not, in effect, I think you do get a hint of what piety is in the Euthyphro, but you have to be, you have to be watching, not simply boiling down the words. You have to watch what's going on. You have to, you have to experience what's going on. You have to realize that Euthyphro makes a lot of sense, not just Socrates. And Socrates is really annoying, but Socrates also is really interesting. If you, if you watch what he's doing and not just listen to his words, but watch him, you get to get a sense of what, of what piety is. And so if, if Plato says that writing facts, writing the answers down so that people can remember them will undermine people's growing in wisdom, then you would expect Plato's writing to not have all the answers, but rather to set out a way of approaching life that helps you grow in your understanding of coming to the answer, right? Just like, I mean, and this is really obvious. I mean, in mathematics, in fact, Plato even suggests that mathematics is sort of the doorway to philosophy. Well, what do you learn in math? Do you learn the answers to all the math problems you'll ever have? No. No. You learn a method. Once you learn the method, then you can apply it in all these different situations, right? If I were, I mean, you start off learning multiplication by learning the multiplication tables. I mean, it's just kind of brute memory. And you need some of that as a basic, you know, you need some kind of basic knowledge. If you can't speak any language, it's going to be hard to, to learn any philosophy, for example. But once you get some, and just like just like Christianity, you need to know the basic story of what's going on in Scripture to really get to get it into any significant depth in Christianity. You need some. You need to know some basics. Like if you don't know that there that there's a God who created the world, I mean that's. I think you need to know something like that, right? So you need to know some of the basics. But in order to become the kind of person who understands, you need to know the method, the 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 path you you, the the. Yeah, the pathway that you that you travel to get to new answers. And math is just the most, that's one of the most like mechanical, meaningless, I mean, it's very helpful, but meaningless sorts of tasks. What does it have to, when we're talking about things like meaningful elements of life, of what makes someone fulfilled and happy and what is that, what is I, all right, what are we and how do we relate to God and love and so on and so forth? How much more so is it necessary that we learn a method um, and not merely an answer. And by answer, I don't simply mean a fact. I also mean the law that you're supposed to like, well, if I do this action, then I'm doing the right thing. Well, no, that's not true. And in fact, well, maybe that's sort of a side, but when you start talking about you having done the right thing, it's almost always in the context of trying to justify yourself and usually in an act of opposition to someone else. Um, or you're just trying to justify yourself in some sort of way. That's sort of an aside that I don't have time to argue for. But um, so when Plato is writing about criticizing writing, then and you look at what he says writing will do to people, well, it's going to undermine their capacity to to un, to to remember, and it's going to undermine their capacity to understand. Then you have to realize that what Plato is probably doing, and the reason why it does this is because it just gives you the answers. Then maybe what Plato is doing is not giving you the answers. He's exercise. He's giving you an exercise in coming to understanding. And part of that is to wrestle with the fact that Plato doesn't seem to give you good, doesn't, in some of his writings, doesn't give you answers. In other ones, he seems to give you bad answers. 
Some might be half decent answers, but there's prob there's still there's invariably problems left with it. Um, so that's one element. That's one element that play that 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 Plato brings up in the Phaedrus. Um, and it's sort of it's he develops this idea a little bit more. Uh, but I mean, maybe we can just take this this element and apply it to scripture. And here here I mean. I'm not entirely prepared to, I, I didn't like write this out, how to, how to apply this. Uh, but when we, when we read scripture, what are we looking for? Does, does Plato's critique of writing or what writing tends to do to us and my critique of how scholars generally approach Plato almost with a, I mean, it's like they haven't even read the Phaedrus before. Um, it's almost like they haven't read Plato before, but that that's really insulting critique. But if having read Phaedrus, how can I go back and read Plato as if I'm just trying to boil it down to the answers? Well, is it maybe is the Bible trying to give us answers? Well, let me try and give a parallel account that might help people understand a little bit what we're trying to get at here. Um, there is a a, a large number of young adults who uh, are obsessed with the Harry Potter series. Harry Potter series, great, great series of books, but they read it in such a way that they aren't just wanting to read about a story, but they're like wanting to understand the characters and like to really get to know the characters and to immerse themselves in the story and to kind of imagine where they fit in the story as well. And it's, it's this very powerful way of reading a text, um, especially a, 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 you know, just a, a, a fiction story, but that people have found great meaning and value in by trying to, fi- to find themselves, imagine themselves as part of the story, to, to see, um, see the story as more than just a uh, you know, a history telling of things, but, but digging in to something deeper. And I think the danger that we often, oh, I'll speak for myself that in, in, you know, there was definitely a time where I would read scripture in a way of, I want to learn the things that scripture says, or I want to see the commands of what I need to, of the things I need to do in my life. But it, it wasn't so much of, seeing myself as having anything to do with scripture apart from information to learn or commands to follow. Yeah. This is a base, basic instructions for before leaving earth, right? Like yeah. follow these things and you make sure that you make it. I had this experience and, and my daughter in particular had this experience. She, she likes books in which there are uh, deep friendships that develop and you get to this point where and I've had this experience with books where, where I finish reading the book and I'm like, I'm going to miss these people, right? Which is sort of weird because they don't exist. But it's like, it's yeah. as if I've become a part of a part of this group of friends. And that's why the book has so much meaning, right? You can have, I'm thinking of like the those uh, Transformer movies. They're just terrible. And they're terrible. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that the action sequences aren't awesome. And it isn't that there's like, I mean, it's awesome that there's these, great machines. And of course, everyone is super attractive. I just don't care about anyone. Yeah. 
I can't become friends with any of the characters. And because of that, I don't care about them. I don't care about the show. I don't care about them. Those movies are completely meaningless to me. I tried to watch. I don't even remember what happens. It's a bunch of big transformer guys running around. Right. Um, but you just, you don't, you can't create any kind of relate. Like when you don't care about the characters, when they all they are is like cool and attractive, but there's no depth of person. It's hard to care. Uh, and it's hard, it's hard to get into it. And so you can't identify. And so the story stops having meaning and it literally, I'm incapable. I don't remember the storyline of any of those movies, right? My memory is dead. And it's, it's a similar sort of thing. Uh, I mean, it's maybe not precisely, but that's part of what you're meant to do in Plato. Plato is written as a series of, uh, a series of plays. Like you're meant to follow along with the characters. You're meant to identify with the characters, not just with the one who's right, uh, but the ones who are wrong, because what they say that's wrong is actually a lot of what they say is really good and really close to right. And even if it's even if it's far from right, it's what we actually experience in ourselves. So the, the maybe the most obvious egregious example is Thrasymachus in Book One of the Republic, who, who describes justice as as the advantage of the stronger. Uh, that is, justice is simply the rules that are put in place to make sure that those in power stay in power, right? Because those in power are the ones making the rules, and they make rules to make sure they stay in power. That's what everybody has always done all throughout history, we could argue. Is that all that justice is? Well, that's the voice of a cynical person. But if you've ever been in a position where you don't feel like you have power, and you keep running up against the rules, I mean... Isn't this experience? I mean, we have, I think all of us have this experience with our parents when we're kids. Um, and, and, you know, you can go to the whole, and, and if, so, if someone has actually lost their faith in justice and the good and good and so on and so forth, this is what they're going to see. And you can see this in Thrasymachus. He's an, he's an angry man. I think he may have been exiled. And so he's just very, very frustrated. And so you can, you, you can kind of see that. And it, by the way, if, if you read Thrasymachus and you can't figure out anyone who would think that way, look around you, right? All the stuff that's going on now is this kind of claim, right? The rules that are in place are merely there to hold those in power and to keep those in power in power. Um, and they, they'll oppress those who are underneath. Um, that may be true the way things are, but that's not really what justice is. Um, there actually is, according to Plato, a justice that we should be pursuing. Um, it's far deeper than than what most people get from Plato's Republic, too, by the way, because um, they read it badly. They're just looking for the right answer, not the method. Okay, so one one of the things about Plato that we can maybe apply to Scripture is that Scripture is is a series of stories. I mean, it's almost all stories, right? Um, there's there, there's some poetry in there. There's some. Uh, there's kind of speeches from the prophets that that you need to put into the stories of what's going on to really understand what's going what's going on there. Um, but they're like every once in a while you get this zoomed in experience of what it's like for someone who's trying to speak for God in the context of of you know sinning Israel and so on and so forth. Um, and then you get the gospels and those are stories. But what do we care about? Even the even the epistles are stories. They're just one side of the story. I, I mean, we we don't we don't have the other. You know the letters that they wrote to Paul, or, or you know we we don't always know what precipitated Paul writing to them, but they they fit into the story. I, you you can't you can't act like these are ah historical 
uh, or or things that can be removed from the the story that that they come from. Exactly, and yet our primary the sign that you're a mature Christian is you stop reading the stories and you start systematizing the epistles. I mean, because the gospels are nice, you know, if you're uh, sort of an immature Christian for you to read the gospels and sort of see what's going on. And, and they give good stories and Jesus has these nice, you know, these cute parables that are cute for farmer, simple minded people. But if you're a real deep Christian, you're picking up your book of Romans and you're digging through that, especially Romans nine, if you're real mature and you're, you know, the second half where he starts talking about practical stuff, that's okay. But really Romans one through 11, that's where the manly mature stuff is. I don't know. I'm talking like that. So, but (laughs) it's, it's sort of strange because, because what we then try to do is we try to boil down Paul and we use him as sort of a weapon, you know, depending on your view of doctrine, use him as a, to try to defend a particular position. And that's the real grown up stuff because the immature are, are those who, who like the cutesy stories. And I'm, 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 I'm exaggerating a little bit. I don't think anybody actually would ever come out and say this sort of thing other than me, but that's that's sort of that's sort of the feel, but it is all in the context of a story. This is the story of God's working in history, and we have the story from beginning to end, right? From Genesis one through the end of the book of Revelation, we have this story from creation to fulfillment to the to the coming of the kingdom, and a lot of it's fuzzy, a lot of it's unclear. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on. You know those those uh, those psalms that are like curses on enemies. You got. God apparently killing loads of people or commanding the killing of loads of people. And you then you've got, you know, you've got nasty disciples. You've got Paul confronting Peter and you've got all kinds of, I don't know, Song of Songs is in there doing something weird too. And so you have, you have all of this stuff, you have all this stuff going on. And, and what we try to do is we try to, we try to focus in, we try to get the basic facts. We come up with a basic narrative and that basic narrative is really a set of instructions on the kinds of things you need to do to make sure that you get saved. And then the struggle is gone. Have you ever thought about why I've thought about this? Have you ever thought about why did God take so long to get the to get the four spiritual laws out? I mean, what's he doing with Noah and Abraham and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and and David and the prophets and and you know Solomon and then the, you know what's going on in the gospels and Paul and everything? I mean, the four spiritual laws are pretty simple. Look, y'all sinned. You need Jesus to get over that cliff thing and you know, ask him into your heart and you're saved. Like how, why do we need the whole Bible for that? Why do we need thousands of years of history for God to get to that point? You ever thought about Maybe that? Because it's more than that. Yeah. I mean, it's either God is, God needs to learn to be more concise. And efficient. And to, yeah. And efficient and get to the point, or maybe we're reading it wrong. And I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that things like the four spiritual laws or these, these attempts to boil down scripture down to the steps to salvation are necessarily bad. They are, they are a good, they're perhaps a good start to create a framework and to understand what is going on in scripture, but they are, they are not remotely sufficient to draw us into love of God. Right. Or to grow. And I know part of the, part of the problem with our reading scripture, I think is that we're just trying to get people saved. We're trying to save ourselves. 
And save ourselves. Well, I mean, but what I'm saying is like, the idea is if you can just get people to say the magic prayer. Sorry, that sounds really insulting. If you can get people to to repent and confess and and ask Jesus into their life, they should be thanking Jesus for inviting them into his life and following him. But following Jesus is something you should, you should probably try to do. But really the goal is to, is to get the grace to cover your sins. And then, you know, sanctification and stuff, if we got the time for it, but we really need to go out and get more people saved. We don't recognize that our goal is to, is to be carrying the kingdom into the world on our backs, like a cross. We think the goal is to, is to get out of jail free card sort of thing. Um, and so we, we read scripture looking for the, the, the steps to salvation and images of salvation. We don't look to scripture to see, to be, maybe I should put it this way, to be inspired as scripture is, to be inspired to follow in Christ's footsteps. Let me give, try, and, try and give another analogy that might help us a little bit. So just pick some celebrity that, you might be a fan of and there's multiple ways that you can you know learn about them and you know say they they put out a biography you know not a biography and then you read it and it's one thing to read it because you want to learn more about the person you want to you want to understand where they came from how they they you know succeeded like what drove them those kinds of things and it's a completely other way to to search out information if you're just all about celebrity gossip or or about just wanting information and if you if you're interested in someone if you care about someone even if that someone seems distant from you and you might feel like you're never going to meet them if you if you have an interest the way you're going to approach learning about them is very different or reading things by them or listening to them is very different than if you just want information or if you just want to to win a trivia contest um there the you know the I think part of the problem is too many Christians have been made to feel like winning a trivia contest about God is the goal rather than actually loving and being interested and wanting to, to really love God as the goal. Yeah. And the idea, I think that most people, but most people's response is because I think, I feel like a lot of people are going to be saying, like, you guys are making a huge deal out of something that's actually most people have have a solution to or a simple solution to and that is yeah you read scripture and sometimes it feels sort of dead to you you know maybe if you listen to music or if you're doing it in the context of a, a certain kind of experience certain kind of environs or whatever you know maybe it has a different effect but the whole point is scripture comes alive when the spirit works and so this is all it's all up to the holy spirit and so i can memorize scripture from start to finish in the original languages and understand all the context of everything. But the only way I'll ever come to love God is if the spirit works. And there's a part of me that, that it says that's obviously the case, but if scripture, I mean, if we're going to go down this Carl Barthian route all the way down, then scripture doesn't even matter. Why is it or, even here? Or the spirit's kind of a jerk because I really do want to love God and to understand scripture. And if the spirit's holding out on me when 
that's what I desire. And I, I mean, I genuinely desire And the spirit's not like what, how, how can we, like, that's not being a, what we would typically consider a good uh, person. Um, seems like there should be more than yeah. th- th- that might capture some of it, but that can't capture the whole of it. I, I mean, it, it seems like our disposition has to play some role in that because we, I, I think we want to say the spirit is continually revealing, revealing to us through scripture, but maybe we're missing it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we're, we're looking for the wrong kind of thing. The spirit's trying to show us one thing, but we're not even looking for that thing. And so we keep not seeing it, right? I'm looking for something that'll change my life. So what fact do I need to acquire? What practical application am I looking for? Well, maybe practical application. In fact, maybe you've experienced this, but I've heard a lot of sermons. In fact, when I was trained to preach, they said, and I've had, I've heard this over and over again. People would say, Travis, you need to, you need to, you know, your goal is to exposit the scripture and then come up with some clear application because the average person who's working nine to five, whatever, they don't have time for all the theology and stuff. They just want to, they want to know what this means for them. What are they supposed to do? Right. To, to put it in a, in a, maybe a simpler way. You, you make a couple of points, you make a couple of, you, you bring up a couple of ideas, you know, you just try to make it three points or whatever. You throw in a couple of jokes and a couple of uh, illustrations. Um, and then you tell them what they're supposed to do. Right. Well, you know what? Because the average person doesn't, the average person doesn't want to learn about God. They just want to know what they're supposed to do. That's what these people, that's what it feels like they were saying to me. Or, or and, what they're supposed to believe. Or maybe, yeah, or maybe what they're supposed to believe. I mean, even though, to be honest, I don't think, I mean, some basic elements of what they're supposed to believe, but usually we don't, we get past some of the basics. It's not that important, right? Uh, but some of the best sermons I've ever heard, I don't, there was no application. Yep. But it's, it's sort of like this. Let me give an illustration, perhaps. But let's say, let's say I'm talking about the cinnamon rolls my mom, my mom used to make. And I say, listen, they are excellent. They are, Travis's instantiations of them are good. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying, but I'm not the cook she was. But if I try to convince you that you need to like my mom's cinnamon rolls, my mom's cinnamon rolls, and I just convince you know, I'm arguing. I give, I give, I say, look, here's some evidence of people who like them. Here's the ingredient list. Here's all this stuff. Therefore, like my mom's cinnamon rolls. I mean, you might be convinced, you know, and I may give you a practical application. Look, you know, go forth and declare the goodness of my mom's cinnamon rolls. But one of the, probably the better way to do it is I give you one and you eat it. And you won't eat just one. <laughs> well, that's, that's standard. And you will regret having eaten more than one shortly afterwards. So the tasting and seeing the, the actually, maybe I could put it this way participating in that which we are meant to to love is what we're looking for. And I mean, participation is sort of a generic term, but it's sort of like if, if, if I'm to love, if I'm trying to convince you to love my mom's cinnamon rolls, I should give you a cinnamon roll so that you can do 
you can participate in the consumption of it so you recognize participate in the experience of it so you know what's good about it just like if i'm trying to get you to to like a kind of music i don't just talk to you about well this person's a very very good you know guitarist or a very good pianist or whatever like that you know they're very good at this and they play nice melodies and blah 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 why don't you just turn on the music the problem with writing is it's always in, in the problem with the problem with, the problem with scripture if i can say it like that is that it's meant to manifest God to us. It's meant to draw us into this relationship and this love of God and love of neighbor. But God is not, is God there? Right, so this is this is one of the things that, that Socrates says in the Phaedrus. He says about written words, he said, uh, you'd think they were speaking as if they had some understanding. He's talking about the written words. So he's, he's writing a little bit strangely here, but he, goes, he says, you'd think that the written word Written words were speaking as if they had some understanding. But if you question anything that has been said because you want to learn more, it continues to signify that very same thing forever. Right? So if you go to scripture and you read a passage, and you're like, okay, this is kind of interesting. Tell me more. You know what your Bible does? My Bible just keeps saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you're just, you're, you know, and so, I mean, we, we, we really, you should be reading your Bible prayerfully. And so we don't really normally sit there and talk to our Bibles. We normally, you know, if you're reading it prayerfully, you're saying, God, clarify this to me. And I think God often does. Um, I think sometimes we come up with, with strange conclusions, but I think, uh, I think often God probably does respond. I think the Holy Spirit sometimes can get past our broken way of approaching things. But one of the things that one of the things that that Plato then talks about, Socrates is talking about with Phaedrus, written by Plato, is that is that when things are written down, they just kind of hit people. They they hit everybody indiscriminately. Hit. They're not written to anyone in particular. And so, and this is where things get really interesting. They're not written to anything, to anyone in particular. They're written to sort of everybody, but nobody. And that's contemporary, all contemporary academic stuff, which is why, you know, people talk about this idea of education, make people better. Education doesn't make people better. It just doesn't. Not even church education makes people better because it's written for a general, for, for everybody and nobody. Uh, uh, if it actually makes you better, it's not because of what was done there. It's because your teacher or your pastor was a particular kind of person who was attentive to you, or because the Holy Spirit worked in spite of all this. Because things that are written for everybody don't change anybody. So the question is, but here's the issue. The Bible is written for everybody. So it sounds like I'm saying, look, the Bible is no big deal. In fact, I might it might sound like I'm saying, you know, Plato's as good or better than the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the way that we read it is important because Plato is writing all this, and yet people still read Plato as if he's written, as if he's writing this way, as if he's writing like everybody else. But he's not, because the idea is that so, if you if you read Plato clearly, you realize just just with the ones with the Socratic dialogues, you realize that Socrates is always talking to the person he's talking to. That sounds obvious, but what I mean is his response is directed to that person, and so in one dialogue he may say. And people think this is a contradiction in Plato. One dialogue, he says, I don't really know what happens after death. The next dialogue, he's talking to a bunch of guys who are mourning because he's about to die. And he claims that he knows what happens after death. Why does he do that? Well, if you read the dialogue really closely and you look at the center point, the whole centerpiece of what of what Plato is, what Socrates is talking about, what Plato seems to be trying to get across, you begin to understand why Socrates might have said this. 
in this particular context. And so when we're reading scripture, we need to stop reading it as if it's written. This, this is tricky because it sounds like I'm going to say you need to read scripture as if it's written for you. And then we can go to the Jeremiah 29, 11. God plans to give you hope in a future. That's not written to you. That's not written to me specifically that God's going to give me a hope in a future. Not in the sense that we normally understand it. Maybe a way to say it is the Bible is written for you, but none of the books of the Bible were written to you. And, and what I mean by that is when we put the Bible together, we are given this the story of God and his interaction and love and relationship with creation, with, with humans in particular. And this grand story, we play an important role. Each of us fit into that story. But when you look at, at each individual book of the Bible, none of those apply directly or just to us. Even though the whole story applies, we can't read any particular book as though it is to us, even if the whole story is for us. And there's, there's another element to, there's another, I mean, that, that's, that's good. That's, that's, that's important because there's a part, there's a whole, there's a whole piece of history of God's story that's, that's, and people have talked about this, and this is a good way of putting it, that hasn't been filled in between all the books of the Bible and the book of Revelation, or the last part of the book of Revelation. Really, actually, there's hints elsewhere. But anyway, in terms of basic <laughs> chronology, there's this whole section left out, and that's where we are. And so we're meant, to, we're meant to live, we're meant to live out that story. But that brings in all these other elements, right? That brings in the elements that we're meant to live in accordance with the narrative that's already there. We're meant to be the bearers of the kingdom, um, which, by the way, this is this is far more dramatic than you think. What that means is we're meant to be part of the story. It doesn't mean that your goal is to simply get saved. You're, we're meant to be bearers of the kingdom in the world now. And I think our emphasis on just getting saved is, first of all, it's eviscerating the very idea of salvation. Salvation is you, you've you been brought into the kingdom and now you're a bearer of the kingdom. I mean, that's 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 different than just okay, I got my sins taken care of and now I'm going to sit around and wait till I die and I'll try not to cuss so much or drink so much, right? That's, you know, that's not, that's not, and I, people say this all the time and all this stuff, but our, our, even the academic capacity to divide salvation from sanctification is almost an atrocity. We can conceptually distinguish the two and that has trickled down, if I can use that phrase, trickled down into our understanding of our lives so that now we not we don't just conceptually divide them we practically divide them in our lives and that is that's borderline heresy i think it makes salvation into something that it is not almost and i need to be careful here cuz i'm going to step on some toes but salvation is not about just getting getting out of hell and getting into heaven if you think that's what salvation is, you might be like the rich man's brothers in the story of rich man and Lazarus, where you've realized here's a, and I'm not trying to scare people into being sanctified. That's not the point. My point is if you, if you see salvation as merely a chance for you to get more, to get, get a good retirement for yourself, 
I think you're misunderstanding it. And the fact that we conceptually distinguish uh, distinguish sanctification from justification, and we can do it conceptually because that's what that's what we do. The the intellectual mind analyzes, and all that means is to break apart, break apart, break apart into all their different parts, and we break apart what God has called us to into two parts: salvation and sanctification. But Jesus didn't say, "Listen, I want you to get saved, and then, and then you know, if you're not busy, you know, trying to earn a living and you know, getting your good retirement build up." I would like you to try to get sanctified too. He just said, pick up your cross and follow me. Okay, but that's 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 not really an aside, but sort of an aside. We're meant to live in the story that's already been set forth. But in order to do that, we don't read the Bible as if it's speaking to, I shouldn't read the Bible as if it's, as if it's speaking to uh, Travis in 2020 with all the stupidity that I'm living in. I'm talking about my own life. We're going to talk about what's going on in the world and the nation. That's another stupidity too, but I'm not, I'm talking specifically about me being stupid and and the the confusions and failures that, that are always going on in my life. What I should be doing is I should be trying to read the passages as if I'm involved in the struggle, right? So I can read the book of, uh, I just got one of my, I like the book of Habakkuk. It sounds like you could roll them up and smoke them. Um, tobacco, not anything else. So, um, Habakkuk, tobacco, whatever. Okay. But the book of Habakkuk, I like the book of Habakkuk and partly because Habakkuk's like, Oh Lord, when are you going to judge the sins of Israel? This is ridiculous. And God's like, all right, I'm going to send these guys, these nasty pagans. And Habakkuk's like, wait, whoa, 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 hold on. Hold on wait, wait, wait. You're going to, you're going to judge us with those scumbags. Look, we might not be great, but we're better than that. And you're like, come on, Habakkuk. God loves all people. He loves everyone. Why are you being such a jerk? Or you look at the story of Jonah, right? Right? God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Well, who's what's Nineveh? It's a city of a nation that's oppressing his people. An enemy, enemy of his people that is oppressing them. Why does Jonah get in the boat and go away? Well, because Jonah just doesn't want to follow God. I guess Jonah doesn't love doesn't love everyone. Yeah, you don't either. And if you allow yourself to wreck it, what would it be like to be an oppressed people and to, for God to call you to the enemy and say, go tell them to repent so that I may save them? You're like, mm, nah, no. I, you need to humiliate them. You need to hurt them first. They need to pay for this. I don't want your grace because Jonah knew God was a God of grace. Jonah didn't want them to get the grace, right? And if you start living in the story and feeling it and recognizing that you're not a good person, you're not, be careful there, right? But that in fact, all these struggles that Jonah has, all the struggles that Habakkuk had, all the struggles that Peter had, and all these other people, in fact, all the struggles that Jesus has, Jesus had in his lifetime are struggles that you're going to suffer from, right? And and you allow yourself to wrestle with God. That's that's a part. That's that's part of what goes on in reading Plato. If you read Plato as if Socrates has all the right answers, and you're just going to boil it down and get the right answers, because we're super smart now. I mean, we have we have planes, and we have the internet, and we have Wikipedia. So we're not stupid like old Plato people were. And so we know all this stuff. I just need you to get to the point, Plato, because we're smart now. I have I went to school then you never get what's really going on because what's going on in Plato is not the giving of an answer, but a showing of the path for living out 
for living into the understanding. And if you read Plato like like that, what's strange is you begin to... My experience, I might be a little bit weird, and no, I don't take drugs. My experience is almost a kind of passion that gets stirred up for what Plato's talking about, what Plato's gesturing toward, because he's gesturing towards something that he can't say, something that he can't quite say. Because the things that we truly love are things that can't quite be said. And so they can't quite be written. They can be gesturing toward it. They can maybe be showing us something, but they can't quite be said. And so the attempt to boil scripture down into what was said and then put into a concise systematic structure and maybe a couple of different steps for how to get saved never quite gets to the love of God because for us to love God, we need to taste him and see, right? Not, not put together a system that doesn't do it. And so to, to love my neighbor, well, what needs to happen to love my neighbor? How does scripture help me love my neighbor? Well, it helps. Uh, that's actually a bigger, complicated issue. But it what it does is it helps us see who we are as people and helps us explore the struggles that we have with people. Uh, I feel like there's a whole bunch I can say here, but I'm I to try to work it out out loud. But I think scripture does the same thing. But let's just talk about loving God at this point. If you if you enter scripture just looking for how do I win an argument with a Calvinist or Arminian about about God's sovereignty, um, or what do I need to know about how to get into heaven and and get out of the danger of going to hell, then you're not looking for stuff about who God is. Now, the thing is, you can't. It's God keeps intruding, right? Because if you're talking about salvation, you can't get away from the fact that God loves you, even right. though we do a pretty we try to make it so that God doesn't love us, but let's not bring that up. Uh, the, in the way we present it, we sort of present God as really not liking you at all, but somehow loving you at the same time, which leads to all this confusion that I and a lot of people I've talked to have struggled with. But we brought this up in this podcast before, I think, about how a lot of people think God loves him but can't stand them at the same time, which is confusing. Which also, by the way, justifies our quote-unquote loving people that we treat like garbage. But uh, uh, let's not, it's too too late in the podcast for that. So, but the idea is when we read scripture, we should, and this is, again, it's kind of hard to explain, but yeah, learn all the information. If you want to, uh, you know, get your commentaries, get the Greek and the Hebrew and stuff like that, because I think that stuff is important and very, very helpful and clarifies a lot of passages if you see what they actually say. There is benefit to doing that, but allow ourselves to get into the stories and actually wrestle. If you're if you're reading the book of Job, don't just look for well, what's the right answer to the to the problem of suffering. Recognize that you suffer, and that you should be experiencing with Job his suffering. Right? We do this with movies when we cry. You know, I watch Inside Out and I start crying um, like a baby. Uh, but when I read the Bible, I'm just like, oh, when is this over? No, I should be wrestling with the people. I should be experienced. Like when I read the book, I did a Bible study with a group of people through the book of Genesis. And you realize all these people are scuzz bags. Like every single one of these people that God chooses are just horrible. Even Abraham was not a good guy. He was like lying all the time and doing a bunch of stupid garbage. You know, Jacob is terrible, right? <laughs> Joseph's a decent, he, Joseph actually kind of comes out as a pretty decent person. And uh, once he grows up. Well, yeah, once he, once he grows up. But yeah, early on, he was a, seemed like an arrogant little jerk. You know, and you're and you're like, what is going on here? And then you're like, oh, you start to see images. Instead, we just represent. Well, Abraham is such a nice guy. He, you know, he trusts God, so he takes his son up and starts trying to stab him and kill him. 
wait, what? I mean, well, what's going on there? Right. And you're not, you don't wrestle with wrestle with actually going on there because we're like, well, God can raise people from the dead. So I don't know why Abraham thinks it's a big deal killing his son. Think about taking your son up there and killing him. Especially after all Abraham went through to get that <laughs> yeah. son. And, and another example, my, my, my seven-year-old asked me today, uh, he said, why would Cain kill Abel? Like, like, how can you be so mad about about that that you would kill someone about it? And we had a long conversation. I'm not sure I actually answered it because I'm not sure I know. But but he he's putting himself in the position, like trying to understand, like what's driving these people. And I'm yeah. like, my seven year old reads the Bible better than I do sometimes. Well, that's the thing we look at it and say, Cain, what a what a bad person. I don't look at it. It's rare that I look at it and realize, Cain, that's me. I'm Cain. Like when somebody does better than me, and Nietzsche says this, right? He says, it's easy It's easy to mourn with those who mourn. That's fairly easy. What's really hard is to rejoice with a friend over their success. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, that's a little bit tougher. That's a true test of friendship, right? Well, Cain, especially because when you're rejoicing with another person, it's because they're successful and they perhaps have achieved a success that you haven't achieved, right? Cain was unable so he tried to unable. <laughs> so I think we need to wrap it up here because yeah. what I ultimately want to get to uh, in talking through a series on Plato is that Plato's primary enemy was a sophist. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of leave this here. We Christians, we contemporary Christians, and maybe for some time, we have a lot of sophist tendencies, sophistic tendencies. We're very sophisticated Christians. And uh, sophisticated Christianity tends, I think, to lean into sophistry, but we have to understand a little bit what sophistry is to see how that works. And one of the things about, I, I hinted at this one even in my dissertation, I, is that part of the problem with contemporary Plato scholarship is you have a bunch of sophists reading Plato and trying to explain him. And Plato's enemy was the sophists. <laughs> so it's not surprising that they'd read it wrong. And I think we tend to read the Bible like a sophist would read the Bible. The, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the reason why Abraham said, look, even if somebody rose from the dead, they still wouldn't understand it, is because the issue is they would have experienced the rising of someone from the dead as a sophist would experience the rising of someone from the dead, not as someone who has a, a heart that was formerly stone as, and has been turned into flesh and been broken before God would experience someone rising from the dead. And if somebody has a heart like that, they don't need to some, see someone rise from the dead. They already have the law and the prophets. I think that's what Abraham's getting at. We need to stop yes, reading like sophists. Yes. We also yes. just need to stop. Yeah, yes. And I, I think this, you know where our next episode is going to go. And uh, so we don't need to set that up very much. Um, so, but I, I think we've, there's a, we've said a lot. I hope that you've caught most of what we said. Um, I heard someone once say that you have to hear something eight times before it actually sinks in. So um, we'll just keep saying a lot of, I mean, if you notice there's, there's themes that we just keep coming back to because th this isn't a simple thing. This, this really is a transformative uh, approach to understanding how we ourselves what what's going on in us as we approach scripture and um 
so we're going to keep talking about this because we're being changed. We're being transformed. Probably not as quickly as we want you to think we're being transformed or as thoroughly as we want you to think we're being transformed. But um, we want to... We want to point you and help you try to see some of the same things that we've seen that have changed us. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, all one of you for listening. and uh, Or maybe three. Uh, anyway, for today, this is Travis. This is Joel. Have a great day.